0: John chapter 11. I don't know if you're supposed to have favorite Bible passages or verses, but for me, John chapter 11 is one such thing. I say that sort of tentatively because it was a favorite passage until at Union, I had to do this as a Greek exam, and it panicked the life out of me when I started to delve beneath it, learning it off by heart from the King James Version. But what we find in John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. And as we journey through it, what we encounter is the tale of a grieving family, a weeping savior, but also a fearful religious grouping. So what we're going to do this morning is jump straight in and journey our way through it. So let's begin at the very beginning. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Very simply at the outset of this story, what we get is the setting for what is going to unfold and envelop. Jesus has three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters And a brother. And if this was an English comprehension, what we learn very quickly is Jesus loves them very dearly. And as we encounter Jesus in the Gospels and in John, what we see is Jesus is a kind of itinerant preacher. From the moment that he's born in 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 the stable or the inn in Bethlehem, he's constantly on the move. He's nowhere to lay his head. He's basically without a base of operations. And what we find in the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel, beginning around verse 38, is that often Jesus would go to Mary and Martha's house. And they practiced hospitality to him. They would welcome him in, Martha would feed him, and Mary would sit at his feet. So this became a kind of surrogate home for Jesus. But what we discover in our reading this morning is that all of a sudden, Lazarus gets sick and is in a terrible condition. And so the sisters do what they think is the natural response, and they send word to Jesus, who was their dear friend. Obviously, they're anticipating that Jesus is going to be concerned, and he's going to play a part in remedying the situation. And we read then in verse 4, when Jesus heard of this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a very important moment. Because this is the moment that we see that Lazarus is not just sick, but that he is in fact going to die. He is sick he will die, but this is not ultimately the cause of death. Because Jesus goes on and expands and explains that really there's something greater in store. And then we find in verses 5 and 6 something that is very paradoxical, something that is sort of peculiar, something that at a first glance may strike you as contradictory because in verse 5 we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus very much. Yet in verse 6 when he heard that he was sick, Jesus stayed where he was for two days. Jesus doesn't rush off to see his friend. Rather he decides to wait for another two days. And then he says to his disciples after the time has passed Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews were trying to stone you for blasphemy and now you're going back there? Surely we can't go back there. This is not going to end well. The last time we were there, people were trying to kill you. And then we encounter this strange and startling thing when Jesus goes on to talk about day and night. Jesus responds to their concern and worry and anxiety with the words, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Light Darkness, as Gary was saying in the linking bit between our two passages this morning, light and darkness, huge theme for John. Right there in the outset, John chapter 1, Jesus has come to be the light of the world, but there's this darkness that cannot comprehend the light. But if we unpack it a little further, there is something more going on beneath the surface. Because the Roman and Jewish calendar essentially broke the day into two 12-hour segments. Jesus is saying, when it is light out, you're supposed to work. When it's dark, it's time to rest. As long as I am in the world, I am its light and there is work to get done. So basically, Jesus is saying, kill me, don't kill me. The bottom line is, I have some things to accomplish. And after Jesus has said this to his disciples, he went on to tell them that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. Fallen asleep, but I am going to to wake him up. And the disciples don't quite get it at the start. They don't quite see that what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is using a metaphor. Time and time again, in fact, I think on 14 occasions in the New Testament, this metaphor is used. Lazarus is dead, but for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go. Jesus is saying that the purpose of his action is is going to be, sorry, that the purpose of this action is not just that Lazarus is dead, because there's more work to be done. So Jesus says, now we must go. And we discover that Thomas reacts a little differently to the other disciples in this situation because the gospel writer signals out his response to Jesus. He says, let us go with him that we may die with him. If this gospel is going to get us into trouble, if this Jesus is being truly radical and countercultural, I'm up for it. I'm up for the challenge. Whatever it may cost me, I will follow, is what Thomas said is saying here. Maybe the other disciples we don't know because we do, we're not told in the text. Maybe they were overly anxious and concerned. They're thinking, yeah, Jesus, these teachings are great, healing people marvelous. Oh, do I really want to die for you? Don't quite know as we come up to the Easter period. But Thomas is resolute in his response. If he's going to die, I'm prepared to die with him. And then the story takes another turn. Because on his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. I love that turn of phrase. There's a bad odor because he's been dead for four days. Or in the King James, but Lord, he stinketh. And it was actually quite funny because on Friday night, I was with a group of people traveling down to Dublin. And back up, somebody said, what are you talking about on Sunday? And I said, oh, John chapter 11. And the person in the car with me, who has no faith whatsoever, turned to me and said, Is that the passage about your guy that stinks? So it seems that this story has impact for these words. We've got a stinking man in a tomb and we've got a crying savior, but we'll come to that shortly. And what we see is that by the time that Jesus gets there, Mary and Martha's house is full. Because those who love and care and grieve and mourn for Lazarus have come to show their sorrow, to express their grief with these women. But by the time we reach verse 20, we see that Martha, when she hears that Jesus is coming, goes out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. And what we see as Jesus comes into this grieving family situation is that he in actual fact deals with both parties individually. He recognizes their different personalities. He recognizes that they grieve and mourn differently. And so he deals with Martha as she comes running to him. Yet he goes and seeks Mary out in their house. So Martha makes a run for it. And she runs up to Jesus in verse 21 and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. If you had have been here, my brother would not have died. Here is my brother who you love dearly and you did nothing about it. Did you not get the letter I sent you? By the time you've managed to get here, he's been in the grave for four days, that's not quickly. What kept you? How often do we respond like that to God? If you had have just showed up two hours ago, this would have worked itself out. If you'd have just worked to my time scale, everything would have been fine. But what do we see happens next? We see that Martha catches herself on. Because it would be very easy to pass over the turn of phrase that we find here. But it is significant. If you had have been here, my brother would not have died. But. If you had have been here, my brother would not have died. But. She catches herself on. I know that even now, she says, God will give you whatever you ask. Because what we see is that she has journeyed from this outright anger at Jesus for not turning up at the right time to the point of saying, okay, Jesus, you're here now. I'm not going to boss you around. I'm just going to leave it in your hands. I'm going to just let you work. And we see that Jesus' response is quite interesting to her. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is another interesting trait in John because as we journey through it, we will see that on seven occasions in the gospel, Jesus declares himself to be the I am and i'm sure if many of us flick back or remember back to the old testament we'll remember that encounter between moses and the burning bush and jesus or sorry god saying i am to him tell them that i am Has sent you. So, what we're seeing here is another hint that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has gone on in the Old Testament, that Jesus is this Word made flesh that we read of in chapter 1. He tells in John's Gospel that He's divine, that He's the Good Shepherd, and that He's the light of the world. And here we find Him saying that He is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus looks at Martha and he makes this declaration, but he goes on to say, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Even if you believe in me, you'll die, but you'll go on living. Martha, undoubtedly frantic, tired, mourning, grieved, and Jesus refocuses her attention Not on the circumstances of her loss, not on her grief, not on her pain, but rather upon himself. He asked her a simple question. Do you believe in me? Because if you do, I am the resurrection and the life. There is no cause for concern. I will take care of everything and I love Martha's answer very simply she just responds yes Lord she understands what's going on so after she says this she goes back and she calls her sister Mary aside she calms down and goes back to her sister she tells her sister the teacher is here and he is asking for you And when Mary hears this, she gets up quickly and she went to him. Now, when Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him, Jesus doesn't come to their home. Jesus comes nearby. And Mary runs to greet him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she gets up and went out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to continue her mourning for her brother there. They didn't know what she was doing. Jesus is coming, and Mary goes to meet him. And we read: when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Classic Mary action. Mary loving Jesus deeply. You can see in that other passage when Jesus comes to their home that she is the one that just sits at his feet. She puts herself in a place of humility and service. Though she says something similar to what Martha did earlier. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He sees that Mary is broken. He sees that Martha is broken. He sees that their friends and family are distraught. He sees tears flowing down the cheeks of loved ones. And he considers the fact that his friend is as good and as dead and in the grave And he comes to the tomb and Jesus is agitated. And it's then that we come to the shortest verse in the entire of Scripture where we just read in verse 35 that Jesus wept. And automatically the Jews respond, see how he loved him. So what is Jesus up to as we get to a wee bit further down the line in this passage. We see in verse 38 that Jesus once more moved deeply, came to the tomb at which the stone was led across the entrance, and he prays to God. Up until now, as we have encountered Jesus in John's gospel, we have discovered that the religious leaders don't quite get him. They don't quite know what's going on. Actually, they're quite scared of him, because these teachings really impact on the way they do things but he prays to god publicly so that it might be a way for the religious around to see that he is in fact the revelation of all they have that he has said so he instructs the crowd take away the stone take away the stone so they took it away Jesus prays and then Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what we discover is that indeed the man does come out. And it tells us in John's gospel that his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus tells them to take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. And what we discover as we get towards the end of this passage is that this further infuriates those who like to be in control. Because here is a guy who not only died, here is a guy who's been in a tomb for four days, and here is a man who no one quite understands, praying to God, getting people to roll back the stone, and this man suddenly is alive again and what we see then from this point on is that the religious leaders have openly decided and declared that what they're going to do is plot to take jesus life because really he's messing around with their religion so what in john chapter 11 can we encounter for our lives this morning What in it can impact how we live and move and breathe in the world around us? Well, firstly, we see that God operates on his own timescale. If you had just been here sooner, how often do we utter those words? If you would have just done this then, but no, God arrives and takes everything in his own timescale but we also see that command of Jesus to Lazarus to come out. And this week on the one-year anniversary of Pope Francis' election to being Pope, we find that he is telling the church that it needs to come out of itself. What grave clothes this morning are we as individuals Wearing? What grave clothes are we as a denomination wearing? What grave clothes as a church universal are we wearing? And what is God telling us to take off? What life have we settled for? What life have we settled for? Two weeks ago we were or maybe even yes, two weeks ago we were in John chapter ten, where we were reading that Jesus has come to have life in all its fullness. What kind of life is it that we want? Is it the luxury lifestyle that we see on our TV screens? Is it the three thousand pound bag? Is it the expensive holiday? Is it the brand new car? Or are we willing to die to self? to truly live. What is our church doing that God is just going, what the heck are they up to now? Do you know who are we embalming? Who are we covering in grave clothes? Jesus this morning very clearly in this passage is calling us as individuals to come out of ourselves and for us as a church to come out and move with the life and the resurrection that only he can give because he is the resurrection and the life. This morning, we're going to continue to journey through that thought as the band are going to lead us in two pieces of worship to think, what moments in our lives are we railing against God saying, if you'd have only turned up two minutes ago, everything would have been fine. Also, to reflect a little on what grave clothes we're wearing not just as individuals but as a church, and to hear the call of Jesus this morning to come out and move and breathe and focus from a direction coming from him.